Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is another edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show, the Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North on this uh, Tuesday, March 14th, 2023, just after 4 o'clock Eastern, uh, what is it? No, Eastern Daylight Time now. It's no longer Eastern Standard Time. So for, I believe, everywhere but Saskatchewan, the clocks have changed in this uh, great Dominion of Canada. If you read The Line, which is the uh, online publication started via Substack by Jen Gerson and Matt Gurney, they had like dueling columns this week about daylight savings, which I feel are a bit of a perennial thing that, uh, well, actually more than uh, perennial because they come twice a year. Wait, no, that's annual. You can tell I'm not a gardener. I don't know. I've Even now, I have no idea the difference between perennial and annual. I believe perennials come back automatically and annuals you have to plant every year, which strike, always struck me as a bit odd because you'd think annual would mean it comes back every year. But uh, if you tune in for the gardening advice, I assure you, you are horrendously disappointed most days and especially now. So we'll move on to the stuff we have a bit of a better grasp on, sports. No, wait, not really much of a grasp of that either. Politics, I can give you, though. I'm going to be speaking very shortly with Christine Van Gein from the Canadian Constitution Foundation about this absurd and incredibly, incredibly, I would say, illegal bylaw that's being proposed in Calgary to make it illegal by, again, by bylaw, by municipal fiat, to protest if city councillors don't like you. So uh, it's undoubtedly unconstitutional, but that doesn't mean they're not going to try it. So that's going to be something we'll talk about very shortly. But I want to start with a bigger picture look at a question that I I think should be top of mind for Canadians, but I'd say isn't always, which is Canada's place in the world. Now, let me preface this by saying that the world is not this idealist place. The world has challenges. The world has threats. The world has risks. And the world has all of these things to such an extent that countries need to find a way to combat them. And and I've been guilty of this in the past myself. If you try to view things too simplistically or too black and white and you miss the nuance of it, you are not going to get a whole picture. That being said, I don't believe anyone in the world of serious countries right now believes that Canada is a serious country. And the the title of this episode on social media is that serious countries want nothing to do with Canada. And I think there is a, a volume, there's a voluminous amount of evidence supporting this, but it keeps growing. The most recent example this week is the Australia United Kingdom United States Security Pact called AUKUS. Now this is, uh, despite how silly the name is, AUKUS is a security and intelligence partnership between three nations. Now, uh, let me just look up the population of Australia. Now, Australia, 25 million people, so not insignificantly smaller than Canada but still has a seat at this table. Now, I realize that geopolitically, Australia is more front and center on the Indo-Pacific. Canada is a Pacific country that kind of forgets it's a Pacific country. Pacific strategy is pretty much an afterthought for Canada. And we've just unveiled a few months ago our grand Indo-Pacific strategy and everyone's forgotten about it because we really don't have an Indo-Pacific strategy in Canada. But Australia is not more suited to be a part of any alliance of this nature than Canada. Yet the difference between Australia and Canada is that Australia has a seat at the table and Canada does not. 
I, I touched on this a little bit last week, that the AUKUS partnership needs to be viewed in context. It's a subset of the five eyes. The five eyes countries, which are the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, plus Canada and New Zealand, has existed for many years so that these five countries that have shared interests, shared language, shared culture, uh, that are all military partners, that are allies in trade and economics and military, that all of them could come together, share intelligence, and tackle together the big threats facing the world. Increasingly, that is China. There is no doubt about that. Even the Liberal Member of Parliament, uh, John McKay, said that China poses an existential threat to Canada and to Canadian democracy and institutions and values, if you extend the point he's making to its logical ends. So when Canada is on the sidelines as three countries that share goals on that get together, this is something that should bother Canadians. This is something that should bother the Canadian government. So what's happened here is this partnership, which has been talked about for quite a while, is moving to the next stage. You had a meeting in, I believe it was uh, Point Loma, the Point Loma Naval Base in San Diego between uh, Anthony Albanese in Australia, Joe Biden in the United States, uh, Rishi Sunak in the United Kingdom. They're all sitting down at the table there and they are talking about the importance of getting together. They're talking about helping Australia develop a fleet of nuclear-powered submarines. They're talking about all of the threats that China's Navy is posing to Western interests, to Australian interests. They are talking about all of this stuff, and then Canada is sitting on the sidelines. This is the tweet from Foreign Policy Canada on Twitter. Canada welcomes the AUKUS announcement supporting rules-based international order in the Indo-Pacific. As part of our Indo-Pacific strategy, we're committed to working with partners to promote peace, resilience, and security in the region, including through an enhanced naval presence. Naval gazing is more like it, but uh, Canada, I think, just basically shoved a few inputs into one of those uh, artificial intelligence chatbots to generate that tweet because they have all of the keywords and the buzzwords without saying anything. So uh, because Canada has been excluded from this, Canada's only role really is to downplay it and say, oh, yeah, AUKUS is fine. That's that little, uh, you know, that little side hustle going on. I mean, it's got Joe Biden on it. So in fairness, you shouldn't take it too seriously. This is a guy that couldn't tell the difference between a submarine and an elephant most days. So again, the fact that he is one of three partners here should probably concern us for different reasons. But if I take this in a Canadian foreign policy context, the big question, where is Canada? And I don't think Canada's exclusion is because Canada decided it didn't want to be a part of this. I think other countries look at Canada and say, I don't see a real nation there. I don't see a serious nation. I mean, you look back at when Stephen Harper wanted to, I'd say, and this was probably a miscalculation, get a Security Council seat at the UN for Canada, and he failed. He failed. Other countries around the world did not want to vote for Canada. Justin Trudeau tried even harder. Was it uh, two years ago? He really aggressively pushed. He campaigned. He was like hanging out with African autocrats trying to get their votes at the United Nations to put Canada on the Security Council, and still lost still lost i think we lost was it ireland or norway but they were the ones voted in and i forget which one was the the one that we thought we were going to get and uh, ireland and norway were ultimately the victors so canada has been rebuked as a serious player that's deserving of a seat on the security council canada has been excluded from this intelligence partnership and all of this is that canada 
is not a player on the world stage in a meaningful way. Now, one of my colleagues, Phil, who is apparently listening to the show, has decided to actually plug this in to ChatGPT, which is the, uh, the, the service that lets you spit out AI. I don't know what he put in, but this is what he got out of it. Uh, the government of Canada is committed to ensuring the security and prosperity of our country and our allies. We closely monitor developments in global security and defense cooperation. The AUKUS Security Alliance between us. See, this is basically he, what, what the AI has given him is exactly what Foreign Policy Canada tweeted, or almost exactly what Foreign Policy Canada tweeted. And then, of course, it ends with the the kicker: Canada values its longstanding relationships with all three nations and looks forward to continuing to work with them on shared security priorities. So uh, Canadian foreign policy is a bit of a point of interest for me. Now, as far as topics of scholarship go, it's a pretty easy one because we don't have, I'd say, a, a foreign policy to speak of. So there's not much to know about it. I think Canada did a very good job under Stephen Harper when it came to foreign policy, largely. There were some issues. But the reason is because they understood the limitations. They didn't try to be something greater than what Canada was. They hitched themselves to largely the United States and found areas where Canada could fill the gaps. We did a lot of very good work in Afghanistan, for example, and that was liberal and conservative governments combined. I'd say that I mean, the Afghanistan legacy is a failure across the board, but at the time, uh, Canada saw a gap, saw a role, and, and tried to fill it. What, what The term you hear from people like Justin Trudeau and, and his colleagues there is middle power. This idea that Canada's not a great power, we're not a, a United Kingdom, we're not a United States, we're not a China, but we're a, we're a middle power. We have a, a role and we get to play it. And uh, Melanie Jolie gave that just asinine comment a few months ago about how Canada's role is to be a convener. That's our great contribution. We can convene. So we can set out our table and all of the great powers will sit at that table. Except no one wants to sit at Canada's table. No one wants to sit, no one cares about a table that Melanie Jolie is at the head of. And that's why Michael Cooper, the conservative MP, got absolutely railroaded last week when he made that comment about how uh, Melanie Jolie looking into the eyes of the Russian foreign minister, which was her comment, uh, was, you know, apparently not going to have him trembling in his boots. And then, of course, every, all of the liberals were like, oh, that's sexist, that's offensive. It's like, okay, well, did it work? Did Melanie Jolie staring into the eyes of the Russian foreign minister do anything? No. Or the Chinese foreign minister, rather. I'm conflating conflicts here. I'm conflating great powers. But no, it didn't do anything. Melanie Jolie staring into the eyes of China's foreign minister did not actually cause China to back down. It didn't cause China to get out of Canadian elections. It did absolutely nothing. So it was not an unfair comment. Not an unfair comment. And then he gets pilloried as, uh, you know, misogynistic and sexist and all of that. But you hear this from liberals all the time, that Canada is this great power in waiting. There was that one of my favorite, one of my favorite articles about Justin Trudeau of all time was one by Kate Bolingaro of Bloomberg. Now, she's no longer at Bloomberg. Uh, writing about the uh, NATO, e it was a NATO EU summit or NATO G20 summit. They, they were back to back and they were in Brussels. 
And Justin Trudeau's people were going around trying to position Justin Trudeau as what he called the dean of the G7. It was G7, not D G20. The dean of the G7, because they determined that with Angela Merkel, the former chancellor of Germany, stepping down, uh, he, he, Justin Trudeau was the longest serving head of government of the G7 leaders. Ergo, he should be the de facto chair of the G7, as though it's a seniority game and not a question of relevance from different countries and influence of countries. And he had, he had decided that he could get involved and help solve the EU-UK dispute over Northern Ireland. So he was saying that, yes, we can get the European Union and the United Kingdom together, and no one cared. Like, none of them wanted to sit at the table that Justin Trudeau was at the head of. Because Canada is not a serious country. Canada is not a serious player. And there are, I think, two fundamental reasons for this. One of them is that Canada has never been and will never be a great power. We don't have the size. We don't have the economic might. We don't have the legitimacy on the global state. And the second part, and I think this is the more critical part, is that Canadian governments often misrepresent Canada's role. If we knew what we were, we knew our size, we understood our limitations and worked within that we would be taken a lot more seriously than we are. But instead, you have Justin Trudeau that thinks he can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Donald Trump and uh, take him down. You've got Christian Freeland that thinks she can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Vladimir Putin and take him down. You've got Melanie Jolie that thinks she can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with China and take China down. And then you have all of these grandiose claims by these uh, leaders that, whoa, we're a nation of peacekeepers. Canada has, I think, like 23 peacekeepers deployed right now. It's in and around there anyway. Uh, so we are not and never have been with the exception of a bit of a flurry of peacekeeping missions in the 1990s. We've never been a nation of peacekeepers, but we have this mythology about Canadian foreign policy that is such a mismatch from the reality of the situation. And uh, we'll certainly revisit this soon enough, but the big challenge here for a lot of people is that we have to check our expectations. Check our expectations. And to go back to this AUKUS thing for a moment, uh, you know, look, if the US, the UK, and Australia think that the three of them have shared interests that are distinct enough from what the Five Eyes Partnership does, that they need this alliance, then power to them. But if you understand the dynamics of this region, the dynamics of Indo-Pacific policy, you'll understand it's not that simple. New Zealand has completely capitulated to China. New Zealand has completely sold out to China. They have exported so much of their trade, and I would say by extension of their sovereignty to China, and they refuse to push back against China because China has become such a dominant player in the New Zealand economy. So I understand why New Zealand gets carved out of this. Canada gets carved out because we have a leader that has decided to capitulate to China at every turn, a leader that doesn't want to take Chinese interference in our election seriously, uh, a leader that doesn't want to take uh, China's fundamental violations of human rights seriously, a government that has been co-opted, it seems like, by people who are beholden to the Chinese regime or, at the very least, start singing from the same song songbook as the Chinese regime. And that's why this is such an important issue to continue to talk about. And it's not about being a global police officer. It's about understanding what you are capable of doing as a country, doing it, doing it well. 
I, I mean, I, I used to like that political show that was on Netflix. Uh, well, it was on Danish television and then Netflix picked it up called Borgen, which is basically Danish West Wing. And it was interesting, though, seeing a political show about a country like Denmark, which is, I'd say, I mean, it's smaller than Canada, but, but it's a country that is not particularly relevant in the global picture. But there was an interesting seer, uh, little arc about this, where the leader that they had put in, as who was like meant to be the bad guy, because he was the conservative, so he was like the leader of the conservative party, was in this debate, and he said, we're Danes. We're, we, we don't need to be Americans. We don't need to be Brits. We don't need to be Australians. He said, we're Danes. We, we do what we can, and, and that's that. And I, I think that understanding our limitations, which is the term I keep going back to, needs to be front and center for Canadian governments. And it doesn't mean accepting ourselves as being a failed state. It doesn't mean saying that we're nobodies. It means just that we have to accept and understand that we are never going to be one of those P5 nations, one of the permanent five members of the UN Security Council. And we, I mean, we had an option. If you look back through Canadian history, I mean, we could have been a nuclear power, but Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, decided to uh, turn his back on that. And here we are today. So uh, moving from the global to the local, I want to turn to a debate that's ongoing in Calgary right now. At least I think it's ongoing. Someone tell me if they've uh, voted on this, but Calgary is debating a bylaw Calgary City Councillors that has been derided online by civil liberties advocates. And if you look at the fine print of it, it's not all that surprising why. This is basically a municipal ban on protesting if city council doesn't seem to like who you are and what your protest is. And I am putting it in an uncharitable light, but we'll uh, get to the details of it here with Christine Van Gein, who is the uh, litigation director for the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Christine, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. It's always great to talk to you, Andrew. So, okay, so let, let's be a little bit more perhaps objective than I was. What is City Council trying to do here? I actually don't disagree with your characterization. What City Council is trying to do is restrict protests around city libraries and recreational be buildings, so like community centers, for protests. But it's they actually are only for specific types of protests and they define which protests cannot be around these buildings by i think it's a hundred a hundred meters you can still protest you just have to go 100 meters away so the protests that they want to ban are protests that are aimed towards objection or disapproval towards an idea or action related to race, religious belief, color, gender, gender identity, gender expression, physical disability, mental disability, age, ancestry, place of origin, marital status, source of income, family status, or sexual orientation. So um, those are this, the uh, terms from human rights legislation. But basically what it means is if you wanna have an environmental protest, uh, you know, uh, a climate extinction march thing in front of a library that's totally fine but let's be clear what they're trying to ban here this is very clearly about the protests at libraries around drag queen story hour and you know people can have whatever their views on that are you may think that they're totally benign and family friendly or you may think that it's objectionable to have um, that type of performance art for children. So whatever your perspective, you are no longer going to be allowed to protest this. This would be uh, prohibited under this bylaw to have a protest like that um, 
in front of a library where it's taking place. And look, I'm not I'm not exaggerating the the topic of uh, it, it is about the drag queen issue because there have been a number of these protests in Calgary recently and I've been watching the debate. It is not over. They're st currently in a closed session, but it is about that. It is just about that issue. Yeah, you're right. They have to add all of these other categories just so it doesn't look like it's about that one issue. I think they would make it just about Drag Queen Story Hour if they could. Yeah. Now, you, you've you looked at this, and I know you've been commenting quite uh, intelligently, as always, on Twitter about this. Your view is that it's completely and utterly unconstitutional, correct? Of course. The, the courts have long applied the principle of content neutrality in defining the scope of our protections for freedom of expression. Of, of expression. The content of the expression, no matter how offensive, no matter how unpopular, no matter how much it might disturb you, that content does not deprive you of your right to expression. So the specific targeting of a very clear type of speech is a big problem here. How would you uh, reconcile what you've just said with the Ontario bubble zone law about uh, restricting protests around abortion clinics, which is very targeted to a particular type of protest? Yeah, so I mean, I take issue with that prohibition as well. I'm pretty clearly in the camp of freedom of expression, but even this is much further. This is just much, much, much further than abortion clinics or hospitals. There's a bubble zone around around hospitals as well. And you could make an argument on the balancing. You could make some argument that a healthcare facility should be treated differently than a community center where political debates are literally hosted between candidates. So, you know, if you if you disagree or disapprove of a candidate, a political candidate, and a debate is taking place in that community center and the grounds of your objection or even disapproval um, is is one of those categories, you would not be able to protest. And I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example of how there could be unintended consequences. And I'm not giving, I'll, I'll just give you an example. So JK Rowling is a very famous author and she uh, would I'm sure many libraries would love to have her come and speak, but she has also been very critical of radical gender ideology and her criticism comes from a place of feminism and sex based rights and her um, if someone came to protest JK Rowling speaking at a library because they disagree with her views on gender, her views on gender are actually couched in her gender, they are form a part of her sexual identity and her, her sex and her gender. So those protests could actually also be prohibited under this bylaw. And I guarantee you the people at city council would be all in favor. These people who support this bylaw restricting protests around libraries, they'd be all in favor of a protest with J.K. Rowling, but they are opposing the protests by these individuals who oppose uh, drag queen story hour. And I want to be clear that I think that there's been some conduct by some of the protesters opposing uh, drag queen story hour that I don't think is is very civilized conduct. But the Supreme Court has affirmed that our right to expression includes the right to offensive expression. 
Well, and the other thing, too, is that protest against an event that you don't like is the very uh, embodiment of free speech. So drag queens have a right to go and perform as drag queens. People that don't like uh, drag shows around children can protest those. And as long as they're not barricading the doors, people can come and go. They hear both sides. Ideally, this is free speech in action. People can make up their own minds. And, and we see this unfolding all the time. So this idea that on something that is a contentious issue, has a city council of all bodies trying to shut down one side of it is particularly insane here. And, and you're right. I mean, they're very deliberate about what they're doing with this. Yeah, look, it's very clearly about this topic. The, the city councillors who are in favor of it are very short-sighted if they don't see how this could cause a adverse unforeseen consequence to someone who's engaging in speech that perhaps they support. And, you know, I, I, I think it's so important for us to remember that it is just not for government to tell Canadians what we may protest and what we may not protest, that an environmental protest is acceptable, but a protest over what publicly funded arts activities are acceptable for children you're not allowed to engage in that protest. That is not yeah. something for government to decide. I don't know if uh, CCF has already planned its response to this uh, beyond kind of comments that have been made now, but but if they do pass this bylaw, which I hope they don't, but if they do, uh, does someone have to be charged under it to challenge or can it be challenged just based on what it is right away? It could theoretically be challenged without charges. It's always better to actually have charges, but we've successfully challenged legislation. For example, there was federal legislation about uh, what the government calls misinformation. Uh, and we've successfully challenged that legislation and had it struck down under the Elections Act. It was Elections Act um, legislation. We had that struck down without anyone ever being charged. And in this case, the charges are serious, right? The proposed penalty under this bylaw is $10,000. $10,000 for exercising your constitutionally protected right to protest in public. Yeah, and I think with all of these things, it's meant to have a chilling effect. It's not—they don't want to, I believe, find people. They just want people to know it's illegal and to just put their tail between their legs and go home. Which is, I think, how these things are are most da damaging. They—they they just try to shrink the bounds of discourse. Well, I think they're also—I mean, I don't. What they're trying to do is move the protests away from the entrances and move but but that actually moves them onto roads onto the sidewalk into residential neighborhoods well, but it defeats the purpose of the protest i mean I, like i don't protest what uh you know the premier of alberta is doing by going to saskatchewan because i'm far away from alberta i protest at where it's happening if i want to protest of course of course so it would make the um the protest sort of irrelevant if you're trying to protest something you're trying to express yourself and it would not be very effective expression if you were only allowed to have your protest in this designated protest area but your question about what are we planning i mean my hope is that they do not pass this i always would love to see a good precedent for freedom of expression and i think that we could get one here if we could successfully have this legislation struck down but you know, we are we are preparing right now if it is passed that we would participate in a challenge and we would work with individuals who might might be affected by this bylaw. So city of Calgary, 
uh, residents who like to engage in public protests, things like that. So uh, if you're a person who cares about freedom of expression and you care about this issue and you might want to participate in a challenge if this passes, send me an email, send me a note on Twitter. Um, our website is theccf.ca and all of my contact information is there. It's always best to challenge with, not just as an organization, but with a real face to the people who are affected by that. And that's the citizens of Calgary. And just lastly, Christine, I know that municipalities are creations of the provinces in, in which they exist. Is there anything that the province could do on this or is this within, I mean, constitutionality aside, is this within the municipal domain solely? Uh, that's a good question. So I, I, I think that's something that Daniel Smith could certainly look at. Uh, as you said, municipalities are creatures of statute. They are created uh, by provincial legislation. But I'd like to remind everyone, we all, you know, complain about the, the big guys in Ottawa, but it is often our municipal politicians, uh, the petty busybodies who have the most authoritarian tendencies and often have the most direct impact on our lives. So don't stop paying attention to municipal politics because those people, once they get a little bit of power, they like to exercise their authoritarian instincts in ways that affect us perhaps the most. Yeah, and I mean, just by virtue of, uh, you know, let me just pull it up now. 2021 Calgary election had 40% or 46% voter turnout. And I think that was elevated above previous years because Alberta had a referendum at the time. But municipal voter turnout is sometimes a third of the eligible voters. So a lot of these things do, as you mentioned, get, uh, they, they sneak in there. So uh, we'll keep an eye out. Hopefully it doesn't pass. But if it does, I, I'm glad to know there are people that support freedom of expression standing by to take aim at it. Christine Van Gein, litigation director for the CCF. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Andrew. All right. Thank you, Christine. That does it for us for today. I should get Stella Ambler back on the show. She's launched that think tank, Municipal Watch, which uh, takes aim at municipal governments that are drastically overstepping their bounds as Calgary is doing here. But again, if you were to ask people, what is the most conservative province in Canada? They're going to say Alberta. If you were to ask people what's the most conservative city in Canada, I don't mean town or village, but the most conservative city, they're probably going to say, well, I think it's Cal. Maybe they'll say like Red Deer or something, but they'll say Calgary. Uh, and I, Calgarians are like, uh, no, just look around. But this is the problem is that even in conservative provinces, in generally conservative cities, uh, you get uh, these municipal governments that do not care about your freedoms and actually hold them in contempt and hold you in contempt. So let that be the cheery note on which we end today. Uh, that does it for us. My thanks to all of you. We'll talk to you tomorrow with more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.